We will anchor in Colossians 1 for most of the morning here. Many of you know I have a brother, and he's actually a half-brother. So I'm going to tell you a story about a half-brother who's not actually my half-brother. We'll pretend he is. So let's say over the years you have come to know me, and you heard me mention that I have a brother. And then maybe some years later you learn that he's my half-brother, and I don't speak much of him. One day, I share with you that he's involved in athletics and don't think much of it again. And the years go by, and I say, yeah, my my half-brother's going to come for a visit. And you go, okay, great, lovely. And in March, my half-brother walks in, and he sits down, and it's Bill Belichick. Now, a lot of people go, I don't know who Bill Belichick is in the first place. Yes, sir. He's the head coach of the New England Patriots, uh, probably the greatest football coach to go down in history. He and I are probably about the same age. And you're going, Bill Belichick's your half-brother? Why did you say anything? I did. I told you I had a brother. I told you he's my half-brother. But he's Bill Belichick! Why don't you talk about this guy? I know Jesus Christ. You know Jesus Christ? Why don't you talk about this guy? Why don't you... I didn't know you knew him. Could that be said of my life? In my comings and goings at work or in the community, even in church, does the fact that we know God Almighty play into this at all? The last thing I want is for from this place, the people, the saints of God, not to hear Christ exalted. He must be from this place. He must be from his word. And so this Christmas season, we are going through some of the passages, what you would consider non-Christmas passages, to look at the extraordinary thing that is God in a manger. Last week we looked at Philippians chapter 2, a great passage on the emptying of God the Son. And what did that mean for Him to come in the flesh? As I alluded after Ty read the opening of Colossians, we come to another really incredible manifestation of Jesus Christ in the Word in just a few verses in Colossians chapter 1. Really, it's going to play out in 15 through 23, and as I was working on the sermon, I'm going, this sermon's going to last three days if I don't cut it in half. 
So I cut it in half and spread the second half to next week. So this we're going to call this one part one. But as we come together, each of us, as I kind of prayed during the offering, we're all coming from different places. I don't know what your week's been like. Okay? I know what my week's been like. Um, some of us are hurt. Some of us are hurting. Some of us are on Snoopy feet. Man, just life is great. It's wonderful. It's fabulous. Some of us are wrestling with sin. But we gather, each of us, in Christ. If we are in Christ, we are empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are assembled together on this day for such a time as this, as His church in this place, to exalt Christ our Lord. And so let's bow together our hearts and minds. Let us submit. Let us lie before Him. Father, we come before you oftentimes stubborn, willful, strong, strong-headed, stiff-necked. And God, we want to submit. We know we must submit. We know we need to submit our hearts and minds for that is for our good. Help us each of us in our place, you know where we're at. Help us to submit ourselves even today to your word, to you, that Christ would be glorified, that your church would be built up. Father, that we would be a people who is a sweet offering to you as we prepare for the day when we will see our Savior face to face. Guard our hearts and minds. Guard my lips today. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> so approaching the verse here, we are in Colossians. Uh, just to recap, again, I, I talked about Thessalonia, uh, Thessalonica in a sermon a couple of weeks ago. We talked about uh, Philippi last week. Tracy, one more slide, if you would, please. I decided not to use my hand as the Aegean Sea today. So I actually give you a map. Um, you can see Thessalonica up here at the very north end of the Aegean Sea. And if you go uh, east-northeast from there is Philippi. Okay? Today we're looking at Colossae, which you hear a lot about Ephesus, Ephesians. They're prominent. Paul had a long ministry there, but Paul never went to Colossae. At least as of his writing here, he hadn't made it through. But because of the time that Paul had spent in Ephesus, Acts tells us that the gospel went throughout the whole region. And it is very likely Epaphras, who Ty mentioned in the opening passages, brought the gospel to Colossae. And a church began, again, this is one of the, the, those churches that Paul didn't have a direct hand in uh, starting or establishing. It's really a little bywater town. There's, there's like a tri-city area uh, there near Colossae. You can zap it out. Uh, right near Colossae is also a town called Hierapolis, which is spoken of in chapter 4, as well as a town called Laodicea which you also read about in chapter 4, but you also read about in the Revelation, and it's not a very good letter uh, uh, about Laodicea in the Revelation. 
But Paul writes this to the church at Colossae. He's in prison at the time of his writing. And he is, like most of his writings to the churches, he's trying to exhort them in their walk with Christ and to put down false teachings. Okay, It is a letter that is joyful. It is a joyful letter because he is thrilled to hear from Epaphras about their walk with Christ and the faith that they have had. Uh, uh, zipping through really this opening, uh, opening chapter, chapter in verse 3, you see that Paul thanks God always. Uh, what is he thanking him for? Because he hears of their faith and their love for the saints. He also not only rejoices in thanksgiving, but he also prays for them. We read about that in verse 9 that they would be filled with the knowledge of His will and with spiritual understanding, uh, that they would walk worthy in verse 10, and that they would bear fruit increasing in the knowledge of God. He also petitions God for their strength and endurance with joy and that there would be much thanksgiving. And, and he ends this in verse 13, speaking of the joy in Christ that we have by stating he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. From this declaration of joy, really in remembrance and thinking on their behalf, Paul just explodes into this doxology. And it's believed by some actually to be a song a hymn from that day. It's very uh, metrical in, in, its, in, its, uh, in its writing there. But it is a great song and hymn of praise to Christ. We'll just, I'm, I'm going to read through it and then we'll, we'll break it down. We're just going to go through verses uh, 15 through 17 today. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, just like last week, First thing we've got to do as we move into this, in, into this passage is to dispel some heresies. Because uh, like Helen of Troy had a face that supposedly launched a thousand ships because of her beauty. That, that doesn't deny her beauty. It was extraordinary. So also this verse and the verse in Philippians has launched a thousand heresies. Okay, this is a passage you go, man, this, you could go all kinds of weird, weird ways with this. And the church has in the past. And they've had councils to kind of, let's bring it back in here. So the first thing we go, he is the image of the invisible God. What? What's this mean? He is the image. Uh, when, when we tend to think of an image, we think of a reflection. You know, I see my image in the mirror. But we know that that image is not really me. It's not really me, and it's actually backwards. So we go, oh, that can't really be what Paul's getting at here. Um, last week, we looked at the word form in Philippians, where 
uh, you know, one of the words was kind of what we see, what the eye perceives, and the other one was like a schematic diagram exploded out. Okay, we see what we're seeing. I mean, we get the whole thing right there. But this word is actually the Greek word icon. Right? We, we've heard of icons. Icons are very big in other religions, and they are meant to represent something else. Okay, I am, I am looking at this little statue, and I am praying to that statue, and that statue is supposed to make me think of God. Okay, and God would call that what? Idolatry. idolatry. That's idolatry. Okay, so we go, oh, that, can't, that can't be what he's getting at. But this little statue is supposed to represent, well, God the Son doesn't merely represent he is. Okay? Think of it. I mean, look at the modifier. He is the image of the invisible God. A better way to think of it is he is the manifestation of the invisible God. He is God in skin. No man has seen God, Scripture tells us. Why? Because God is spirit. John 4. So as God takes on skin, He is now a thing that we can see. He is God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the existence of the invisible God. He is the physicality of the invisible God. Truly our manifestation. And this is what Scripture declares to us. Jesus Christ himself told Philip in John 14, verse 9. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 that I read at the start says, He is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Okay, as best words can describe they're describing that He is the living God. John writes in his Gospel, in John 1, verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So as we consider Christmas here, as we think about God incarnate, we behold truly and worship the living God. He is living, yes, as a physical being, babe in a manger, but he is living as the self-existent one. We talked about Yahweh, what Yahweh means. I am that I am. I have self-existence in myself. He is the image of the invisible, the living God. He is not a lesser God. Let me go back to Philippians to make that clear because Paul told the Philippian church he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He is fully God even as he lies in a manger. So one of the statements in that first verse that really gets people all crazy is the image of the invisible God. The second is that he is the firstborn 
of all creation. Oh, so God the Father created God the Son. If we look to John 3.16 in the King James Version, you would read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And again, you get this idea of God the Son being created from God the Father. That word there, begotten, in those passages, I'm going to go there for a little bit because people will use that as an excuse here to say, well, he was born. The word, and I'm, I'm not a Greek scholar, monogenes, mono, one, monorail only. One only, mono, genus. Now you go, well, what words do we get from genus? You might think genetic, generation, genus, generation. All of those things have a similarity. And so in times past, the church believed in translating this word that it was, and again, geneos, which is the idea of begetting, forthcoming, that the Son was birthed from the Father. Now, most, most 20th century biblical scholarship gets a little wonky, especially as it comes out of Germany. But the one area that is, has been pretty solid is in the understanding of languages. The more we study the languages, the more we understand the nuances of words. And the word there, instead of geneos, is more like Genus, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. <laughs> okay, as you teach your kids biology. Genus is essentially a kind. He is one of a kind. He is the only kind. He is the one son there. So even as they wrestled with the, like the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed, if, if you grew up in, in that kind of a tradition, speaks of the only begotten of God. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. They worked hard, even in the Nicene Creed, as they wrestled with begotten, to emphasize that he was begotten, not made. That he wasn't a created being. He, is ex he has existed in eternity past. So, okay, so he's not begotten. Well, what, what about firstborn? If he is the firstborn of all creation, Paul, being essentially a rabbi scholar in the Jewish tradition, speaks of firstborn as the Jews would understand firstborn. And that is the one in priority, not one in generation. The firstborn had all the authority of the father there. He would be the heir of all things as Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. He would do the family bidding. When you spoke to the son, you spoke to the father. When you spoke to the firstborn son, you spoke to the father. There. But isn't he linking it to the creation? Stating that he is a created being? No. In being the firstborn over all creation, he has the authority over all of the created realm. So this very first verse 
exclaims, He is God and He is Lord. When it says, He is the image of the invisible God. He is God. When it says He is the firstborn over all creation, it says He is Lord. And Paul takes these next two verses, well, actually the next uh, seven or eight verses, and fleshes out the implications of that single verse. And so we're going to look here in 16 and 17 at the implications of Him being the Creator of all things. Verse 16 says, For by Him all things were created. Again, this goes all the way back to Genesis. This is the all things of all things. This is in total. This isn't just all things in Wichita Falls. This is all things. Here, wrap your arms around all of it. And the fact that God the Son is the Creator is also echoed by two other authors in Scripture. If you believe Hebrews was written by somebody other than Paul. Hebrews 1 Verse 2, as I read earlier, says that by Him all things were created. Speaking of God the Son. John, in his gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 3, says that all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. God the Son, the creator of all things. We go, so what did he create? We just said, all things. Well, Paul's not going to just leave it with all things. He's going to specify. He's going to break it down. Where does his, his specificity go to? He specifies the what. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. What? He specifies the realms there. The, the realm of heaven. The realm of earth. He breaks it down. The visible and the invisible. The spiritual and the concrete. This is a testament to the supernatural. We live in a world that is very material. We are living in a material world. If you see it, it is. If you don't, it's not. That is what people will assert. And they live for what they can see. We know that there is a what you can't. We know that there is a spiritual realm all around us. One day we will have eyes to see. I think it would blow our minds. Like Elisha and Gehazi, when Elisha prayed and asked God to open the eyes of Gehazi, and he saw all around them the armies of the Lord surrounding the armies of, and I forget the other folks that were out there at that time. I think we would, we would be astonished <laughs> at what is here with us, even right now as we gather together. And so, I hope that we would have a, a cosmic appreciation for that which we do not see. Um, 
But not only does Paul specify the realms by speaking of heaven and earth, invisible and invisible, he also specifies positions in the earth around us. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Okay, He created all of these things. There's no nuance to the word throne. If you look it up in the Greek, it's throne. Okay, it's a throne. Who sits on the throne? The king sits on the throne. The ruler sits on the throne. Dominions um, has the, we think, you may have heard the word kyrios, which means Lord. That's the root for that. That word, dominions. Uh, masterships, those who pre- possess mastery over you. Uh, entities or governments. Okay, the dominion of Wichita falls right across the street from where we are. Rulers. Archangel. Archangel, the big, the biggest, the top, the first, comes from the word that means first there. The one who has preeminence, the ruler. The authorities. The ones who have the power of law to them and governance. So, God has created all these things. Why? Paul goes on to specify that he has created them, but there's a reason for this. He gives, he gives a specificity there of the how and the why. And we th- see four specifications that Paul makes in the creation, that all things were created through him. He was the power behind it. He did it. He was the actor as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit moved to speak things in the beginning. God the Son was the actor in this. All things were created through him. All things were created for him. As we, as we go through this, as, as I was studying through this, this is the one that kind of slapped me the hardest and, and made me just to sit back in my chair. Um, it's, it's really a tweak to our little egos. All things were created for him. I know there's a lot of folks who don't think much of Rick Warren, but his book, purpose-driven life starts out with one of the most profound sentences I have ever read. Before he gets to that sentence, he actually uses this verse. Um, All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He uses that verse, and then he starts out his book by saying, it's not about you. All things were created for him. Even you. Those authorities, those dominions are for him. There is no higher and greater good in all of the universe than God. The very act of his creating is an act of grace. He didn't have to. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in eternity past perfectly happy. And God said, let there be light. And he graciously created a realm for us to live in. 
and created us for His good purposes. We were created for Him and for His pleasure. That mankind is for His glory is played out throughout all of Scripture. God made creatures to have relationship with Him, not because He needed it, but that we would know His glory and that His glory would be magnified. He spared a people to Himself out of a rebellious people in a boat in the flood for His glory. And then of the peoples that followed out of Noah and his family, he took a people to himself for his glory, Israel. And when they were in bondage, he redeemed them for his glory. And then a century later, he created a people again for his glory that sits here even now and up the street and across town and across the face of this country and this world. He created the church for His glory. The church, the bride that He is purifying to present to Himself. Now, the fact that all is for His glory is for Him should not diminish in our hearts and minds the depth of His love for us. Because if God loved us greater than He loved Himself, He would be an idolater. He can't love anything greater than Himself without committing idolatry. And so His love for us emanates out of his desire for us to know him and to worship him and to give him the glory that is due his name. His love for us and for his glory is played out in the revelation to us of his redemption in Christ and our restoration to him. We are for him and for his glory. And when we live that way, we will find our greatest joy and our greatest purpose, both at Christmas and throughout the year. This is why that when we attempt to find fulfillment and satisfaction in anything apart from him, we will find conflict and dissatisfaction. If you are looking for fulfillment in your entertainment, you are going to be dissatisfied. I don't care how X you make it, how extreme. I don't care if you, you, know, you put on one of those kite suits and miss mountains by that much. You are not going to find fulfillment. If you're looking for fulfillment in your marriage, oh, when I get married, oh, then I'm going to be fulfilled. I'm going to be completed. You are going to be sorely disappointed. I have a great marriage and I'm thankful for it. I'm so thankful for it, but she is not my God. And if I try to find satisfaction in her, that is not fair to her. 
That puts a responsibility on her that she can't carry. I can only find my satisfaction in the living God. Your job, your J-O-B. Okay, if you're trying to find satisfaction as a mom, oh, I'm going to be fulfilled as a mom, my kids, my kids. Guess what? Your kids are going to leave. They're not going to need you anymore. Then what? You got some flyers. There comes, some, comes a time where you hang up the speed jeans. You're going to have to go and stop being a little kid. Got to get a real job. You know? And there comes a time where you got to hang it up. And if you're trying to find satisfaction in that, it's great. It's great fun. It's supposed to be. But you are going to be disappointed if you are trying to find your ultimate satisfaction. Even your church. If you're, if you're thinking, oh, man, only if we can find a good church uh, oh, that has these programs and this and dynamic music and, you know. And you, you know what? There's people in that church. And you're going to be disappointed. Only in Him are all of these things good. If I have a proper orientation this way and I see them as His gifts to me, I can enjoy them because they reflect back to His kindness and His love to me and His glory. All creation was through Him and for Him. And all creation comes after Him. It says He is before all things. Again, this is a priority of Christ. Not that He was created before, but He is He's before you. He was long before you. He is pre-existent and uncreated. Through Him, for Him, after Him, and all of creation is by Him. In Him all things hold together. I mean, the whole electric, you know, pro- pro- protons, electrons, you know, how's that all hold together? Well, there's these... Co- God could... He doesn't even, even have to snap His fingers. He could just stop and... We would vanish. Every created thing would be gone. In him all things hold together. I could have a brain aneurysm right now and conk that fast. My life is in his hands. So I can't boast of my existence. He has made us. We... We go, well, okay, he made me. Well, now I'm autonomous. I can do what I want. And really, that has become the God of this age. That is the trump card overall. I am what I say I am. My truth is what I say my truth is. No, you are what he says you are. Because that is what you are. I could say I'm a candy cane and believe that wholeheartedly, but I am not. This idea, this personal autonomy has infected even the church where we decide what sin is and what sin isn't. No, he tells us what sin is and what sin isn't. 
I can't live my life contrary to what he has made plain. If I am created for him, sustained by him, then I must submit my life to him. Otherwise, I am straining against the leash. I am merely a steward of the life he has breathed into me. I am created for his glory. Therefore, if I glorify him with my life, I will find my ultimate joy and satisfaction. But if I live in rebellion to him, I may enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, but I will come to an end miserable and wretched. If I try to use a vessel in a manner for which it was not intended, I will likely ruin that vessel and destroy it in the end. Misery now and in the life to come. I can put a good face on it, but the truth will out. The cry over and over again in Scripture is to set our mind on things above. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. The babe in a manger. (coughs) Baby in the back. God in the flesh. This This is God the Son. That was born on Christmas Day. Now this is, this is truly a blessing for us to know and worship. But worship means much more than songs. It means much more than hearing the word declared. As I declare my praises to God, if my heart is not submitted to Him, if my mind and my will are not submitted to Him, if my deeds and my displays are not bowed down to Him, then my worship is hollow and empty lip service. If He is my God, my Master and my Lord, if Christ incarnate is truly my Christ and my Savior, then my life must reflect that truth. Bill Belichick's my brother, then why am I not talking about him? Why don't I live like that? Why do I not wear Patriots stuff? Why do I have a Viking mug and not a Patriots mug? There. And it takes more than a fish on your car. Is he my passion? Do other things take a higher priority? Are the temptations of this world more consuming? Do I want one more bite? One more look? One more outburst? Let me have... I gotta have one more drink. Oh, one more roll of the dice. Are these things stronger draws on my heart than the call of my Savior? He's God. He calls us to turn. Turn away from your vomit. The Corinthians did this in Acts, and they burned. 50,000 pieces of silver worth of their sin, they so repented. Now, a piece of silver was a day's wage. You can sit there and do the math. That is one year's salary for 190 dudes. One year's salary for 190 guys. That's how much sin they burned. 
Why? Out of love for God and their hatred for sin. To turn and flee from the wrath to come. Now, if, if we're just doing a 12-step program, and I don't mean to diss the 12-step program, if I'm just turning from my sin and not filling it with the living God, I'm going to go right back or I'm going to find something completely different. But God calls us to turn from his sin, not to a mountain of granite. We don't run into a cold, cold, unfeeling God who cares nothing about us. When we turn from our sin, we turn to the living God who has for us all things, who's adopted us into his kingdom, who's made us sons and daughters of the king. We come to the glory of God, Father and Son incarnate and the Holy Spirit in glory and splendor beyond our imaginings. We come to the Son for whom, through whom all things were created. Next week, we're going to look at the implications of the cross on that because Paul doesn't leave this here. Redemption. Oh, that our worship would not be tasteless and stale like a box of five-year-old wheat thins that you found in the back of the cabinet. That our worship would be a feast and a delight, not merely to God, but also to us. As we come boldly as his adopted children to play and enjoy the throne room of our God and Savior in the midst of creatures that will be beyond our comprehension with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, come, let us adore him. Father, we thank you for the revelation of your son to us in the redemption of our sin, but in knowing the glory of God the Son. Oh, that we would be enwrapped and awed and desirous of him all our days, and especially now in this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen.